you want to call me a murderer for? I've never killed anyone. I don't need to kill anyone. I think it. Believe me, if I started murdering people, there'd be none of you left. Welcome, welcome friends and enemies to the latest episode of Exploring Evil. As always, I'm your host, Jeremiah, with writing and assistance from Kayla Miller. If you like the show, spread the word. Recommend us to friends and enemies alike. Give us a five-star rating and write a review. You can also leave a voicemail if you want, and you might get to hear your voice in the podcast. You can also email us with feedback and case suggestions at exploringevil at gmail.com. Whatever time zone you're in, let's explore some evil. Imagine, it's the worst day of your life. The man you've loved all your life has mercifully passed on after fighting bladder cancer valiantly for many years. You're conflicted with sorrow for his loss, but happy that he's in a better place now. You pick out a sturdy, elegant wood coffin. Your dad was a carpenter, so it just felt right. You ask that he not be embalmed so his body doesn't get touched anymore. After all the treatments, you just want him to have peace. Later, you find out he was victimized after his passing. Robbed of bone, ligament, and tissue. You have to wake him from his slumber, exhume him, and he has to be autopsied, only to find out his bones had been stolen and replaced with PVC pipe. One person consenting to tissue donation can help up to 80 people struggling with bone degeneration, burn victims, the blind, the handicapped, and a mile-long list of other ailments. You're probably familiar with organ donation, lungs, heart, kidneys, etc. There are stringent rules that have to be followed to ensure the health of the recipients. Having metastatic cancer or cancer that is spreading, you're obviously disqualified. If you have hepatitis, you can be matched to a recipient that also has hepatitis or a recipient who would die without a transplant and is willing to take the risk of contracting the disease. Systemic infection would also disqualify you from being a donor. Most organs are donated by the deceased, but living donors can donate a kidney, part of a liver, lung, pancreas, or intestine. 
With tissue donation, the disqualifications are more numerous. You cannot donate tissue at the time of death if you had sepsis, pneumonia, or other infection at the time of death. You have hepatitis, HIV, or AIDS. You have lymphomas, bone, or myeloma-type cancers. You have dementia, Alzheimer's, or Parkinson's. You have autoimmune diseases, including rheumatoid arthritis or multiple sclerosis. You have had metastatic cancer within five years. Recent smallpox vaccine or exposure to someone who has had the vaccine recently. You have taken human growth hormone. You have had malaria, Chagas, active herpes, or West Nile virus. There are also social prohibitions set by the FDA. You cannot donate if, and hang with me, this is a long list. You have any history of IV drug use. You are a male who has had sex with another male in the last five years, or a female who has had sex with a male who has had sex with another male in the last five years. You've had a prison tattoo or a tattoo or piercing outside of a professional studio with sterile equipment. You can't have acupuncture done outside of a medical office or professional studio. You've traveled to the UK for more than six months between 1980 and 1996, or lived in Europe for five years cumulatively between 1980 and 1996, lived on a U.S. military base in Northern Europe for longer than six months between 1980 and 1996, or received a blood transfusion or blood products from Europe since 1980, having been in jail or any lockup for longer than 72 hours in the last year, been a rape victim within the last year, had an accidental needle stick exposing you to someone else's blood within the last year, having been bitten or scratched by a pet, stray, farm, or wild animal within the last year because of possible exposure to the rabies virus. Long list, right? That's what disqualifies you from being a tissue donor for the safety of the recipients. As you'll see, some tissue can slip through the cracks. Enter Dr. Michael Mastromarino, accomplished oral surgeon known for his expertise with dental implants. He wanted more, so he attended the FDA new paradigm for tissue regulation and took this new knowledge to the tissue recovery industry. It should be noted that he had his dentist license revoked due to drug addiction and being caught with a syringe and Demerol outside of the office. He decided to open a tissue harvesting, or recovery as it's called now, business. In 2001, he opened Biomedical Tissue Services in Fort Lee, New Jersey. They were to recover tissues, including bones, tendons, and skin, to sell to processing companies who then sell the parts to hospitals. A relatively new practice designed to help our society live better, richer, fuller lives. But everything has a dark side and Mastro Marino's dark side would victimize unwilling donors, their families, and recipients, and their families. 
but they needed a starting point. He recruited some associates, or accomplices as the case may be. Lee Crusetta was a licensed practical nurse who was a tissue bank specialist and tissue recovery specialist. He described tissue recovery as his, quote, calling. He was Mastro Marino's right-hand man in this new venture. Chris Alderazi was another cohort and was described by authorities as a, quote, cutter. Joseph Nicelli was a funeral home owner and embalmer who would fit into the scam by supplying bodies to Mastro Marino and his cutters. Daniel George Funeral Home, 1852 Bath Avenue, Brooklyn, New York. A funeral home plays an important role to the grieving family when they lose a loved one. The directors offer support and consolation at a vulnerable point in their lives. They help organize the funeral, wake, and burial, and they take care of the body, whether it be embalming, presentation, or cremation. There's an intimate trust between the home and the family. You want to believe that your loved ones will be treated with respect and dignity in their final hours above ground. But not at Daniel George. There, loved ones destined for burial or cremation were treated like automobiles at a chop shop. Master Marino and his goons plundered the bodies of their bones, ligaments, and skin, anything that could be sold for profit. But they needed someone to sell the parts to. Enter Regeneration Technology Inc., LifeCell, and Tutagen. Publicly traded companies who process the harvested tissues and sell them to hospitals to be used on patients. As far as everyone knows, these companies are legit and on the up and up. Unfortunately, they were also able to be duped by Mastro Marino and his body snatchers. Josh Hanshaft was an assistant DA in Brooklyn, New York and the Bureau Chief of Rackets in Kings County, New York in 2005 when he was approached by a police officer and a witness with a story to tell. The unnamed witness had found something unsettling in a funeral home she had invested in and didn't think it was part of the services offered by Daniel George. She told a tale of a room upstairs that had bodies going in and out at all times of day and night, with a man named Dr. Mike. She also found dozens of FedEx receipts that were addressed to tissue processing organizations. Handshaft was intrigued and decided to follow up. What he uncovered would make his skin crawl. There were dozens and dozens of FedEx boxes filled with ill-gotten body parts, bones, skin, and tissue. He then approached the victims. Thomas Dumaine, his beloved father, had been valiantly battling bladder cancer and his body had been poked, prodded, treated, and radiated for several years, and he just wanted to put his father to rest. His father was a carpenter, so he picked out a wood coffin he described as warm. He asked that his father not be embalmed, as it had already been through so much. He trusted the funeral home, and everything went according to plan, just not to his plan. 
His father's body was sent to the bone room where he was robbed of bones and ligaments without consent, obviously against the wishes of he and his son. As part of the investigation, his body had to be exhumed and autopsied. The photos of the x-rays are alarming and despicable. His femurs, tibula, and fibula, the leg bones, were replaced with simple PVC pipe, like the one that the water goes down when you flush the toilet. Thomas was devastated, to say the least. Susan Cook Kittrich, a Vermont minister, had laid her father to rest too. He was Alastair Cook, author, radio personality, and host of Masterpiece Theater. He died at age 95, but was listed by Mastro Marino at 85 and in good health. He died of lung cancer that had spread to his bones. His tissues were harvested illegally, and what the family thought were his ashes were scattered in Central Park. James Thornton, or as Mastro Marino and his grave robbers knew him, BM04L125. BM for biomedical, L for the 12th month of the year, and 125 for the 125th body harvested that month. They harvested 900 square inches of skin. Then there were the recipients of Mastro Marino's tainted tissue. Dana Ryan, an Ohio woman, had been having severe pain due to a severely herniated disc in her back. She was ecstatic when her procedure to rebuild bone had ended her pain. One problem, the bone she received from Biomedical Tissue Services and Michael Mastro Marino. She got a letter from the FDA after the scandal was uncovered saying that she should be tested for hepatitis, HIV, and AIDS. She did so and was diagnosed with hepatitis B, which can cause liver failure. Betty Pfaff wasn't so lucky. She received tissue that had been infected and she ended up with a severe infection, septic shock, dialysis, and eventually paralysis. Her lawsuit is pending. An unnamed man from Ohio who received his tissue from biomedical tissues ended up with HIV and hepatitis C, both of which can be fatal. Michael Mastro Marino retained New York attorney Michael Gallucci and promptly convinced him that everything he did was on the up and up. Gallucci and Mastro Marino had a meeting with D.A. Hanshaft and his new co-counsel, Tricia McNeil. Hanshaft said it was obvious that Mastro Marino was in complete denial. After the D.A. approached the donors' families, it was obvious that 99.9% of the tissue was gained without consent and illegally. The DAs had a mountain of evidence to sift through, enough to fill a room, and had trouble finding a way to organize it in a way that could be presented to the courts. Time after time, hundreds and hundreds of documents were found to be forged. 
Signatures didn't match, and it came out that both Mastro Marino and Crusetta had both forged documents. When it all came out, Mastro Marino had made more than $5 million from this operation, and Crusetta made hundreds of thousands. His other cohorts claimed they didn't make anything. Mastro Marino claimed that he was doing everything he did for the good of society, but there was a mountain of evidence to the contrary. The big three publicly traded companies that did business with Mastro Marino and his company claimed that Mastro Marino provided them with sample tissue from each cadaver so they could test it. Sadly, they found out that Mastro Marino had another trick. In his goodie bag, he had tissue he knew was healthy that he sent to the processors that he would switch out for tainted tissue, and they would accept the tissue believing that it was safe. The processors were none the wiser and continued to rely on Mastro Marino for what they thought was healthy tissue. Mastro Marino claimed that he knew they irradiated the tissue, therefore cleansing it of any disease. But that doesn't explain how recipients receive tainted tissue. In the end, there were over 1,000 cadavers illegally harvested, and each cadaver can be worth over $100,000. Each person who had their tissues illegally harvested had many victims, so you do the math. The Trial Originally, Mastro Marino pleaded not guilty, but when faced with all of the evidence against him, he pled out to guilty. He faced charges in New York City and Philadelphia, including criminal conspiracy, 244 counts of unlawful taking or theft with 32 of those charges to run consecutively, four counts of deceptive business practices, 17 counts of aggravated abuse on a corpse with 15 to run consecutive, enterprise corruption, and faking medical documents. He was sentenced in New York to 18 to 54 years and 25 to 58 years in Pennsylvania. He ironically died of bone cancer in prison in 2013. One of the cutters, Chris Alderazi, was sentenced to 27 years in prison for charges including enterprise corruption, grand larceny, and falsifying business records. Another cutter, Lee Crusetta, was charged with conspiracy, taking part in a corrupt organization, theft, forgery, and abuse of a corpse, and was sentenced to 8 to 24 years. Funeral home embalmer and owner, Joseph Nacelli, was also sentenced to 8 to 24 years. It all comes down to greed. One cadaver can help up to 80 people, Mastro Marino said. He said he was doing it for all the right reasons, upwards of 5 million of the right reasons, which helped fund Mastro Marino's heated driveway so he didn't have to shovel snow. This crime spree left thousands of victims in its wake. Mastro Marino said, I never killed anyone. But he helped supply bone to Dana Ryan, and that bone was infected with hepatitis. 
he caused the paralysis of Betty Pfaff and helped infect an anonymous Ohio man with HIV and AIDS. He ruined a great many lives, including his own families. Be careful where you send your loved ones when they pass away. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for The Blood Farm. Gorengpur, India, a man, no, a shell of a man, a junkie approaches a group of farmers with bruises and needle marks up and down his arms. The group ignores the man and assumes he's just another junkie seeking refuge in India from his homeland, Nepal. Conditions are even worse in Nepal than they are in India, and thousands seek refuge in the sweltering heat of Gorengpur. But life isn't much better there. The farmers had grown tired of the Nepalese influx and cared even less about heroin junkies. But this man was no junkie, and his story shook the men to their core. He said he'd been kidnapped, locked away, and drained of blood. He said there were more like him that didn't have the strength to escape. Was it true? The men called police and the story became even more sickening as the man explained what had been going on to the police. He said he'd been imprisoned in a small tin shed for three years and his blood had been siphoned from him, leaving him with just enough not to die. The needle marks and bruises on his arms were from bloodletting. The ringleader was a respected dairy farmer named Papu Yadov. He'd been milking the men of their blood and making money hand over fist. The man took the police to the prison he'd been locked away in, and conditions looked like a horror movie. Brick and tin sheds baked like furnaces in the sweltering Indian heat. A total of 17 men lie out on cots, barely alive. They had ivy drips and the moans of madness filled the air. On the ground at each cot were bags of blood and empty bags waiting to be filled. The bags had hospital seals, stamps, and barcodes. The men said that lab technicians would come drain the men twice a week, leaving them constantly on the brink of death. The men were freed, and their pale gray dehydrated bodies were sent to a local hospital where Dr. B.K. Suman said their bodies were like clay. You would pinch the skin and it would just stay. The doctor said their bodies were so low on hemoglobin, they ran the risk of over-oxygenating the men too quickly and had to build it up slowly. Dr. Suman said they were, quote, addicted to bloodletting. 
Yadov kept meticulous accounting ledgers, so the investigation was relatively easy. Yadov first offered the destitute $3 for a pint of blood, which he could then sell for $20 to $150 depending on the type. He offered them a place to stay, and then he would drain enough blood to keep them as prisoners, locking them in the shed so no one could escape. He'd been doing this for at least three years. The men were held captive through coercion, fake promises, and padlocks. Yadov was sentenced to just nine months in prison. When he was first locked up, there was a terrible shortage of blood in the hospitals in Gorinpur. But then the supply started to rise again, indicating that someone else had learned from Yadov and started their own farm. Well, that's it for Exploring Evil tonight. Special thanks to Kayla Miller for writing and research assistance. If you like the show, please leave a five-star review and tell all your friends and enemies to check us out. You can also email us at exploringevil at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear a voicemail, which may get played on the next show. You can leave a voicemail by checking out the show on the main feed at Anchor FM. Whatever time zone you're in, good morning, good afternoon, good night.